Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. It's one of the most iconic albums ever made, with the tracks from rumours still trending and, yes, charting even today. But the stories behind those songs of lust, drugs and betrayal might just be more memorable than the album itself. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Hello, Michelle Andrews. Hello, Zara McDonald. How are we feeling? Feeling really good. I have to say, when it comes to this scandal in particular, when I think about why we wanted to cover it and what sort of piqued my interest, it's got to be Daisy Jones and the Six, the book by Taylor Jenkins Reid, right? Yeah, for sure. One of our all-time favourite stories, which is funny because it means that Taylor Jenkins Reid, the author of that novel, has now influenced two different scandal series. We used The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo to talk about Elizabeth Taylor, and now we're using Daisy Jones and the Six to talk about Fleetwood Mac. I know. For those who haven't read the story of Daisy Jones and the Six, it basically does follow a band, a rock band back in the 70s, and sort of goes through the drama of them creating music together and what happened behind the scenes and how what was happening behind the scenes was far more dramatic than anything that you could ever kind of, you know, make up in your mind. Mm. And that feels very much how the story of Rumours was created by Fleetwood Mac. This album is so incredibly iconic. I mean, you don't even need to own the album to really know so many of the tracks on the album. And it's iconic because of the music, but it's also iconic because of what was happening behind the scenes when it was made. Yeah, for sure. I also feel like on Shameless, we've spoken about the rising prominence of TikTok and the dreams trend of 2020 was one of the first TikTok trends to really make the global news cycle. So for those who missed it, it was basically this trend of rolling down a street on a skateboard, drinking cranberry juice and listening to Fleetwood Mac Dream. Something as simple as that is still so pervasive and trending in this era. Yeah, exactly. And we did speak about that on Shameless too. So they are still so relevant today, which is why we wanted to do this story. Mish, we are going to rewind all the way back to 1948 because we are meeting Stevie Nicks. (laughs) 
All right, Zara, it is 1948 and Stephanie Nix has just been born in Phoenix, Arizona. Very, very quickly though, classic toddler story. She struggles to say the word Stephanie when she's young, so she becomes Stevie. Yeah, exactly. Stevie always wanted to be a singer and I think this seems to be a bit of a thread through a lot of these scandal tales when we tell the story of really well-known celebrities is that they always had a bit of a feeling that this is what they wanted to do. She started performing at the age of just five with her grandfather. Her grandfather was actually a country singer in Arizona and he reportedly dressed her in like cowgirl outfits and put her up in like a saloon bar to sing in front of people. Feels like such a different time, doesn't it? She once told Huffington Post that when she was a child, she, and I quote, wanted to listen to rockabilly and rock and roll and R&B and I was just in my own little musical world. I had it planned out. In sixth grade, I was wearing a black outfit with a top hat. I had it all planned out. Yeah, well, those who know that iconic Stevie Nicks look will know that that does sound very (laughs) planned out if that's what she was wearing in sixth grade. Stevie's success, some might argue, comes down to the fact that early on she had incredibly switched on and supportive parents. Stevie told The Guardian that her mum, Barbara, fought to have her own career after she'd given birth. I mean, quick reminder, like this is the 40s and had told Stevie growing up, you will never stand in a room full of men and feel like you can't keep up with them and you will never depend on a man to support you. She drummed that into me and I am so glad she did. I'm in love with Stevie Nicks's mum already. Stevie told High Times in 1982, the only thing my dad has ever said to me was because my dad was very successful and very ambitious. He said, if you are going to do this, you better be the very best. I don't want to see you being second. That was a pretty heavy thing to say to me. So on one hand, you've got this mother who's instilling resilience and strength and individuality. And then you've also got this hyper competitive father who's saying, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it the best. Yeah, you're going to do it properly. Her family moved around a lot for her dad's work. And after her junior year of high school, they found themselves in California. And it was there that she met the guy that would become her longtime love and creative muse, Lindsay Buckingham. Longtime love and spoiler alert, longtime enemy. Oh my as gosh. Well, so let's intro the listeners to Lindsay Buckingham. And guys, let us say, when we first came to this story, it is a little bit of mental gymnastics because Stevie sounds like a more masculine name. Lindsay sounds like a more feminine name. Lindsay is the male protagonist in this story. He was born in California in 1949 to an incredibly sporty family, actually. He even had a brother who went on to compete at the Olympics and become a silver medalist in swimming. Yeah, there you go. Lindsay was an okay swimmer, but his real passion actually obviously lied with music. His parents bought him a guitar and he picked it up naturally and he never had any lessons. And to this day, he actually can't read music. He's just one of those real natural talents who probably operates on feel more than anything else. Yeah, insane. Of their first meeting, Rolling Stone writes that Stevie walked into a youth group meeting, saw Lindsay sitting on the ground, and I quote, Harry sitting cross-legged on the floor, strumming a guitar. Rolling Stone also added that when Stevie heard Lindsay playing, 
Without a trace of embarrassment, Stevie sat by him and joined in. It was 1966 at the time. So Stevie was 18, Lindsay was 17. So these people are meeting. These two are meeting really, really young. Mm. Stevie told the story years later in 1981. She said, I was a senior in high school and Lindsay was a junior. And we went to a Young Life meeting, which was a religious meeting that simply got you out of the house on Wednesday nights. And he was there and I was there and we sat down and played California Dreaming and I thought he was darling. Yeah. So after that meeting, as beautiful as it was, as much as they clearly made a connection, they wouldn't actually see each other for another two years. It was towards the end of 1966 after Lindsay had met Stevie at that youth club meeting where he went on to actually form a rock and roll band known as Fritz. But when two members had to leave the band to go off to college, they needed to find a replacement singer. And somehow, two years on, Stevie was still in Lindsay's mind. Exactly. So Stevie told Us Magazine that two years after meeting in 1968, he called me and asked me if I wanted to be in a rock and roll band. She was 20 years old. Bit random. Very random, but very sweet as well. She went on to become the band's female singer while Lindsay played bass and the band Fritz was pretty successful. They were opening shows for musicians like Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. Yeah, pretty incredible. Like that is a pretty successful band. Stevie and Lindsay didn't date during this time. So they were seeing other people while they first sort of met and first started working together. But Stevie later told Rolling Stone that, and I quote, There was always something between me and Lindsay, but nobody in that band really wanted me as their girlfriend because I was just too ambitious for them. Such an interesting quote. And again, one of the reasons I love Stevie Nicks so much that despite her living in a very patriarchal society, she always made it very clear to everyone around her that she was going places and she didn't really care for social convention. Yeah, and she had ambition. So according to the biography, Stevie Nicks, Visions, Dreams and Rumours, Fritz was doing pretty well, right? And they had gained a new manager who was trying to secure a record deal for them. Their manager was calling up all these different producers to see who would be interested in watching the band play live. So he eventually found this guy. He was like this emerging sound engineer and his name was Keith Olsen. Keith Olsen lived in LA and he actually flew out to attend a show. But after watching them play... Keith was only interested in Stevie and Lindsay, which is just like the most brutal thing ever. But a story I feel like we see come in like movies and TV shows. It's like we only like two of you. Yeah. So in an interview, Keith once said, I saw the band that night and I thought there's something special here. Lindsay and Stevie, when they sang together, they had this colour. Those voices were meant to sing together. Meanwhile, according to that same biography, The band itself was pretty fractious. So apparently they were arguing more than ever. It kind of seems like Lindsay and Stevie wanted to explode, like they wanted to take their careers to LA and really make it big, while the rest of the band was happier to stay in San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. So Keith actually offered to help produce Lindsay and Stevie by themselves if they left the band and started working as a duo. Now, Stevie and Lindsay went back to their motel that night to talk about what they were going to do. And it was that night that they actually finally got together. So it was 1971 and they were 23 and 22 respectively. And they finally acted on that chemistry. Now, what I find (laughs) hilarious about this 
is their explanation for why it was this night they got together. So This is so weird. Stevie told Rolling Stone that they got together because, and we quote, we were so sad that they had to tell the three other guys in the band that nobody wanted them, only us. So, so what, we had sex. So they had guilt sex? Yeah. They were like, we feel so bad, we're so talented, <laughs> let's bang. It doesn't really make any sense at all, but I love it. <laughs> so by 1971, Fritz was on the way out and Buckingham Nicks was born. Stevie told Rolling Stone that after Fritz kind of ended, fell apart, whatever, she and Lindsay were spending a lot of time together Together working out songs. Quote, pretty soon we just started spending all our time together. Yeah, so Lindsay used some money that he'd got via inheritance that he'd been left by an aunt, and he bought this recording device that was reportedly the size of a washing machine. So we're not talking about like funky little iPods, <laughs> we're talking about recording devices the size of washing machines. I love that you're talking about iPods as if they're recording devices anyway. Yeah, that's actually so true. <laughs> Transparently, when our researcher Justine brought this fact to us we were like does that matter like they bought a recording device and then she's like no no it's the size of a washing machine we're like okay that matters (laughs) Lindsay's dad actually owned a coffee production company referred to as a coffee plant as well and that was really the only area they had when they had no money no resources to really record this album so they would drive to the coffee plant after hours and would work through the night in a spare office room where they would cut tracks on this massive washing machine recording device. Stevie told Rolling Stone of that time, it was scary there. Good acoustics though. Yeah, the tracks they recorded formed the basis of their first duo album, which was self-titled Buckingham Nicks, and they are often referred to as the coffee plant demos. Now, in 1972, they finished writing a seven-song demo. They put the tape recorder in the back of their car they drove to LA and knocked on Keith Olsen's door, that emerging sound engineer we mentioned before. And Keith recalled listening to that demo. He said, Lindsay set it up in my house and said, listen to this. I was so blown away. Oh my God. I took those demos and I started to go around to sell them. Yeah. Stevie and Lindsay signed up with Keith's production company. He was officially their record producer. Now he was pretty seminal in their careers. Keith Olsen helped the duo secure a deal with Anthem Records. That was kind of a branch off of a massive record label called Polydor. Polydor was a very, very big deal. Now, they had signed bands like the Rolling Stones and ABBA and more recently have signed artists like Haim, Lana Del Rey and Billie Eilish. Yeah. Big deal. No fucking round here at all. Like these are big (laughs) names. So at this time, they are clearly in this space where they are trying to work out who they are as artists, but also who they are as a couple too. So they're trying to make a relationship work, like a working relationship work and a romantic relationship work, which to be honest, just sounds like an absolute nightmare. And guilt sex can only get you so far. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not the basis for a lifetime. Stevie told Rolling Stone years later that, and I quote, our relationship was great. We had other problems. We didn't have a lot of money. We were alone in LA, didn't have our families, no friends, didn't know anybody, but we had each other. Yeah, they weren't legally married, but they referred to each other that way. So Stevie said, we were absolutely married. I cooked, I cleaned, I worked, I took care of him. Now, this quote hints to a dynamic in their relationship 
that I know that I certainly couldn't put up with. Yeah, this is a really, really interesting dynamic that she hints a couple of times about. So during these years, Stevie worked as a waitress so that Lindsay could stay home and write songs. She told Q Magazine that it was as independent as I've ever been before or since. When you have a tragic, starving artist, if you hang out at home all the time, you just get more tragic. So for me to go to that job for five or six hours a day was good. I said to Lindsay, you can sit around thinking about being famous, but somebody's got to pay the rent here and it's obviously not going to be you. Yeah, according to Pitchfork, she spent her days off cleaning Keith Olsen's house, waiting tables at the Cooper Penny and being a hostess at Big Boy while Buckingham, and I quote, smoked enormous amounts of hash in their apartment working through musical ideas. So you have this woman who we need to say, is incredibly talented in her own right. It's not like there's one artist yeah. in this dynamic and one person who needs to work conventionally and make money. They are both artists, but it seems like Lindsay Buckingham was either impossible to drag out of the house and actually get to work in a nine-to-five job or he was so hopeless that there was no point even trying to get him to do that. Yeah, you hear st- a story like this and you're like, there is no way Lindsay Buckingham would ever have reached the heights of something like Fleetwood Mac without a Stevie Nicks because, nah. yeah, it's good to have talent and, yes, it's good to have dreams and want to commit to that. But, gosh, you've got to have a dash of realism in there too to be able to pay the bills. I mean, a lot of these quotes from Stevie do sound quite resentful of Lindsay at this time, but Stevie actually looking back on this time has also said that she wanted Lindsay to stay home and work on his craft. And it's a really interesting quote, this one. She later told Spin Magazine this, I didn't want to be a waitress, but I believed that Lindsay didn't have to work, that he should just lay on the floor and practice his guitar and become more brilliant every day. And as I watched him become more brilliant every day, I felt very gratified. I was totally devoted to making it happen for him. I never worried about not being successful. I wanted to make it possible for him to be successful. And when you feel that way about somebody, it's very easy to take your own personality and quieten it down. I knew my career was going to work out fine. I knew I wasn't going to lose myself. There's so much to unpack here because we have positioned Stevie before this quote anyway as someone who seems quite independent, quite feminist, particularly for her time. And yet I still find this quote relatively independent and relatively feminist because she's sitting there being like, I'm not worried about me. I'm going to be just fine. I have that much faith in my ability that I can go out and work. He's the one that needs the help. Yeah, that last bit of the quote, I knew my career was going to work out fine. I knew I wasn't going to lose myself, speaks to a level of self-belief that probably Lindsay Buckingham didn't even have. It goes without saying Stevie Nicks' parents were quite concerned about this time in her life. I mean, they're watching her in this dynamic that is incredibly, incredibly unequal. She later told Playboy, I was always sick and Lindsay and I had no money and whenever my parents would see me, I'd be really down. My relationship with Lindsay was tumultuous. I mean, how's that for a sense of foreboding? I guess we know (laughs) it's not always going to be easy for these two. But as we mentioned before, Stevie did have this incredible unbridled confidence in herself and in Lindsay's talent. She knew they were going to be big. And I love this about her. It actually kind of reminds me a little bit of those quotes we read in the J-Lo. It's like, I feel like maybe to be this big and to be this good at something, you actually have to have these kinds of thoughts and feelings. So she told Rolling Stone... That even in those early days, I knew that we were going to be somebody. I think he had a little bit less belief in that fact that we would make it big. 
I always knew. Yeah, according to the biography Stevie Nicks' Vision, Dreams and Rumours, she also said of her earliest days in the music industry, and I quote, I would walk like a rock star. There was something about my posture and the ballet I had taken and I would be swathing through crowds of people thinking, do you know who I am? And I really believed it. It's like that thing, build it and they will come. I was thinking I'm going to be a big star soon. I believed you could plant the seed in people's heads. She's right. Fake it till you make it. Like I, I don't think she's faking it here. I think she truly, truly believes that she's going to make it. But an audience will buy into a star who never lets doubt knock on their door. And yeah. Stevie Nicks was that. Yeah, exactly. If you haven't seen photos or pictures of Stevie Nicks, we will post a gallery on our Instagram, but she became very well known for her bell-bottom pants, her billowing shirts, cowboy boots, and her tussled dark blonde hair with the thick fringe. Her hair was the most iconic part of her, mm. I think. When it comes to Lindsay Buckingham, on the other hand, he was much more of an enigma. Lindsay had long, dark, curly hair and a moustache. He was dressed in the kind of outfit you would naturally try to recreate for a 70s birthday party. I mean, in a photo shoot for Buckingham Nicks, he wore flared jeans, a light shirt unbuttoned to show his chest hair and platform boots. Yeah, Rolling Stone wrote in 2018 that Lindsay has always been a mystery man. With his eccentric obsessions and solitary work habits, he's been in the odd position of an underrated weirdo cult genius who happens to lead one of the world's biggest bands. Lindsay seems like the exact opposite personality type to be in any band, least of all Fleetwood Mac. The picture that the media has painted of Lindsay Buckingham, I've got to say, is not a particularly flattering one, is it? No, weirdo cult genius. I mean, there's the genius thrown in there, but definitely regarded as someone that nobody knows who to make sense of. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So their first album together, Buckingham Nicks, was released in September 1973. Stevie was 25. Lindsay was about to turn 24. The album cover is a really interesting one, Mish. So it actually featured both a topless Stevie and Lindsay gazing at the camera's lens. Now, Stevie's breasts were kind of covered by Lindsay's shadow and his body. Yeah, they look young but also sexy at the same time. Stevie's mum, looking back on that artwork, told Arizona Republic, it was a big shock, let me tell you. Stevie immediately showed it to me and I just told her, we're going to have to think about this before we show it to your dad. Stevie didn't want her dad to see it at all, but she was young then and it's something she was talked into. I think she's alluding the mother there. Stevie was talked into taking her top off for this album. She was young, she didn't know how to stand her ground and she probably wasn't super comfortable with the whole thing. Yeah, and you're trying to crack into an industry that's really hard to crack into. You've been signed by a major label. Like you kind of at this point don't have a lot of power if you want to make it big. The album actually didn't really do well commercially, but according to Spotify, it received high praise from critics and other musicians. Pitchfork, in reviewing the album retrospectively in 2019, gave it a pretty impressive 8.4, but said that at the time it was a complete failure. Promotion was light, the few reviews were mostly bad, and Polydor dropped the duo a few months after the album came out. The moment was over as quickly as it started. It's an interesting thing to look back at an album from two people as famous now as Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham, because everyone's like, oh, it wasn't recognised at the time, but it was actually quite good. 
And it's like, yeah, that might be true, but are we all kind of looking back with the knowledge that they are incredible artists? Retrospective reviews. I'm not are sure about such them. Bullshit, because it's just it's all the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. Who's going to tell them that they're wrong now? It's like, well, yeah, they went on to be genius, <laughs> but if the reviews at the time were bad. I kind of think those are more valid than ones where we can look back and be like, it was genius. <laughs> I can imagine, though, the only thing that does make sense if, if promotion was really light, that perhaps it wasn't pushed out in a way that it deserved to be. But I do just find, you know, retrospective reviews a bit silly. <laughs> look, the pair weren't giving up. We know now for sure they were not about to give up. They had already actually written material for their next album, including a certain song called Rhiannon and another ballad called Landslide. If those sound familiar, it's probably because in December 1974, Mick Fleetwood, yes, the co-founder and leader of the band Fleetwood Mac, came to Lindsay with a proposition. But Zara, all that after the break. Alrighty, Mish. So by the time that Mick Fleetwood approached Lindsay Buckingham in 1974, The band Fleetwood Mac had already been running for seven years and had a handful of members come and go. They were already very, very well established. Yeah, and transparently, there is a lot of drama that predates Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks joining Fleetwood Mac. We can't and we won't get through it all, so we're going (laughs) to give you a very brief synopsis. Fleetwood Mac was formed in London in 1967, so as you said, seven years by the point they reach out to the duo. The original bandmates included Peter Green, a guitarist, drummer Mick Fleetwood, guitarist Jeremy Spencer, and bassist John McVie. They had survived and weathered some storms. Hadn't they just? So they were incredibly successful as we touched on before. I mean, at one point in the late 1960s, they were selling more records than the Beatles. So this band wasn't just semi-successful at this time. They were incredibly successful. But in the years before Stevie and Lindsay joined, they had a band member exit because of drug addiction. They had a guitarist pull out to join a religious cult. They had another guitarist by the name of Bob Weston get kicked out of the band because he was having an affair with Mick Fleetwood's wife, Jenny. Yeah. So by this point, they're thinking, look, we've had success, but we definitely need some stability. Let's get Lindsay into the band. Yeah, and stability wasn't exactly what they got. So by 1974, Fleetwood Mac was down to just three members. They had Mick Fleetwood, who we've mentioned before. They had John McVie, who was also one of the original founding members. And they actually now had John's wife, Christine. Christine McVie was a really talented singer, songwriter and keyboardist herself. So the three of them were in this band together. And that was when Stevie and Lindsay came into the picture. So... Mick had been out to LA where he met Keith Olsen. Welcome back, Keith. The (laughs) random guy that keeps coming back into this story who, to be honest, we would have admitted ages ago if he didn't keep coming up. So Keith played Buckingham Nix's song, Frozen Love, for Mick. And Mick was really, really impressed with Lindsay Buckingham's style and asked to meet him. Yeah. Mick called Lindsay Buckingham up to see if he would be interested in joining Fleetwood Mac By this point, Lindsay Buckingham was 25, Stevie Nicks was 26, and I know that we've kind of shat on Lindsay a little (laughs) bit. To his credit, he said to Mick Fleetwood, if you want me, you have to take Stevie with me. We are a package deal. Yeah, I do love this part of the story. So things had been looking a bit dire for Buckingham Nicks before the call came along. They had like a tenuous deal for a second record, but as we said, nothing was looking particularly strong. 
Lindsay was actually worried about joining Fleetwood Mac. He wasn't sure how he felt about toning down his big personality to fit in this large group dynamic. In an interview with Uncut, Stevie recalled telling Lindsay, we can always quit. They're going to pay us $200 each a week so we can save some money and leave in six months with a little nest egg if it doesn't work. Yeah, and honestly, if it wasn't for Fleetwood Mac and that original phone call between Mick Fleetwood and Lindsay Buckingham, Buckingham Nicks would have ended. Stevie told Uncut of that time, I was really tired of having no money and being a waitress. It's very possible that I would have gone back to school and Lindsay would have gone back to San Francisco. And so they joined the band. It was the most stable and successful version of Fleetwood Mac. It was Mick Fleetwood, Stevie Nicks, Lindsay Buckingham and Christine and John McVie, who had been married at this stage for six years. But it wasn't all smooth sailing from the start, though. And this really does set the tone, doesn't it? They reportedly all met up at a Mexican restaurant for dinner in LA to see how they were all going to get along. Stevie and Christine reportedly hit it off immediately. Christine saying about Stevie that she was a very bright, very humorous, very direct, tough little thing. I want someone to describe me as a tough little thing. That's the best. (laughs) Like a little nugget, like a little tough little thing. But it was John McVeigh's quotes, according to Rolling Stone that are probably the most interesting. He said he found Lindsay Buckingham, who began by advising him to play simpler, brash. Yeah, they did make it work though, because within the next three weeks, the band was in the studio with Keith Olsen. Welcome (laughs) back, Keith. And they were recording their next album. Stevie and Lindsay proved themselves to be made of like solid gold very early on. They put Rhiannon, Crystal and Landslide on the table along with Monday Morning and I'm So Afraid. Christine brought the singles Say You Love Me and Over My Head. Within three months, they'd finished the record and by July 1975, they were releasing their 10th studio album under the Fleetwood Mac name, simply titled Fleetwood Mac. How interesting. This all happened Pretty quickly. So quickly. The album was not an overnight success. The initial reception was actually fairly modest. So Fleetwood Mac worked hard and toured relentlessly over the next year to get the record in more people's ears. So Stevie told Uncut there were no limousines and Christine slept on top of the amps in the back of the truck. We just played everywhere and we sold that record. We kicked that album in the arse. It was only in September 1976, 15 months after the album's release, that it topped the US charts. I love that stat. Yeah, well, they just, as she said, kicked it in the arse. Like, they really wanted to make it work. They trusted their own product, even if the reviews weren't initially glowing, and it paid off. That rise to meteoric success did coincide with some personal turmoil, though, Age 27 and 26, respectively, Stevie and Lindsay began to unravel a little bit. Yeah, to be honest, cracks started forming everywhere. It was kind of like as these five came together and formed Fleetwood Mac as we knew it to be at this time, they all started to fall apart a little bit as they started to do quite well. So let's take you to just before, the months before January 1976. And January 1976 is an important date because that is when they started recording rumours. But in the lead up to this album being recorded, the band were abusing drugs pretty heavily. It had become a core part of their culture. Yeah, and it got to the point where that crazy, insane drug use began to seem normal. Christine McVie told Rolling Stone of that time, in those days it was quite natural to walk around with a great old sack of cocaine in your pocket and do these huge 
derails popping acid, making hash cookies. Stevie told Q Magazine that, and I quote, we were all drug addicts, but there was one point where I was the worst drug addict. I was a girl, I was fragile, and I was doing a lot of coke. Yeah, as Q Magazine wrote in 2001, in Fleetwood Mac, Stevie became a rock icon, sex symbol, multimillionaire and drug addict. Her casual blonde beauty and classically Californian hippie Chuck Couture made her the most desirable rock singer on earth. She allegedly bought a million dollars worth of cocaine and did so much that it burned a hole in her nose, Mish. Yeah, she explained that, I have very delicate tissue, so it ate away my nose. It's so painful. I curse the day I ever did cocaine. Nothing really works right in my head anymore. This drug addiction was so intense and serious and life-threatening. One friend, musician Tom Petty, told the same magazine, I was very worried about Stevie, to the point that if the phone did ring and they said Stevie died, I wouldn't have been surprised. So intense. As we mentioned before, Lindsay and Stevie were also falling apart as a couple too. Now, they didn't tell their bandmates that just before joining their relationship was kind of on the rocks. Yeah. Stevie told Uncut that Lindsay and I were in total chaos a year before we met Fleetwood Mac. I had already moved out of our apartment a couple of times and then had to move back in because I couldn't afford it. Our relationship was already in dire straits. But if we'd broken up within the first six months of Fleetwood Mac, there would have been no record and we would have been in big trouble. So when we joined the band, we made the decision to hang in there. Yeah. God, what a nightmare. An absolute recipe for disaster. Like not just relationships within the band and Lindsay and Stevie really struggling to get along, throw in drugs and alcohol and touring and stress into the mix and fame and I don't see a lot of stability in the future. Not at all. As Rolling Stone wrote, the steady drugging combined with the pressures of recording under the band's highly collaborative system tore at the already weak fabric of the couple's relationships. Rolling Stone's right. I think if you're going into a dynamic where you've got five people in this band, four of them make up two separate couples, Mm -hmm. and you're going in to record albums and tour and work together 24-7, you want those relationships to be as strong as possible. But both of those relationships were hanging on by a thread. But like, the thinnest fucking thread. Like tooth floss. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and as well, like I also think money. Like we can talk about drugs and, of course, fame. But I think money can sometimes pull people apart when you're given all the freedom in the world. We know that with celebrities, sometimes that level of freedom means that people don't want to be stuck with one person anymore. So we also know that because they had had a lot of success with the Fleetwood Mac self-titled album, There was an expectation and there was a mountain of pressure on each one of their backs saying, you need to back this up. You need to achieve the same success, if not greater success with your 11th album. Exactly. Only things weren't just bad in the band. They were verging on broken, to be honest. And over the next few weeks and months while recording this album, rumours, sexual affairs, drugs and calamitous relationships would become the inspiration for one of the most iconic albums of all time. That album's name is, of course, Rumours. Why would they call it Rumours? Well, according to Mick Fleetwood, they said Stevie was sleeping with me, Christine had run off with Lindsay, Stevie was seeing John and me on alternate Wednesdays, Stevie was leaving, Stevie had left months ago, and this was why the album had been delayed. So rampant were the rumours that sometimes we heard them fifth hand and had to call each other to make sure we were still sane and in touch. 
Yeah, we are going to dive into all of those rumours and the album rumours all in the next episode of Scandal Mish. I cannot wait for the next episode. I mean, I enjoyed this episode, but the next episode is nuts. Truly something else. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this. We certainly know that researching it along with our beloved fact checker and researcher, Justine Landers-Hanley, We learned so much. Like, of course, we love Fleetwood Mac's music, but hearing the story behind Fleetwood Mac is hopefully something that you found really entertaining. Yeah, we can't wait for next week. In the meantime, we are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. As always, we will have a gallery up of very nostalgic photos for you to check out. And we will be back in your ears on Thursday for another wrap in the week that was in pop culture. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. Bye. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.